Faye, it feels really nice to be back and recording podcasts again after parental leave. But, you know, even six weeks later, I feel like I have missed a whole world of things in OBGYN. Yeah, me too, especially nine weeks out. But thankfully for us, um, we can refresh our memory with the OBG project. That's right. The OBG project kind of has their great, great summaries in these bullet point formats online. They've got resident exclusive resources, the core curriculum, um, and they've got a new project in the primary care med project. Um, you can check that out as well, which lets you get up to date with all those primary care guidelines that we got to keep up with too. And even better, if you're a resident, remember that you can get OBG first absolutely free. So if you want to figure out how to do that, go ahead and go onto our website, click on the sidebar, and link to the OBG project. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is... Creogs over coffee. coffee. everybody. So today we have two very exciting guests with us um, who are going to be talking to us about climate change um, and how that affects uh, OBGYN and pregnancy. So with us today, we have Dr. Santosh Pandapati, who is a maternal fetal medicine physician and a co-founder and chief health officer at Elovu Health. And we also have with us Dr. Serena Hare, who is a third year OBGYN resident at OHSU. Welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. Uh, I'm thrilled to be part of uh, resident education and, frankly, everyone's education in women's health. Happy and excited to be here and to be able to talk about this really important topic. Yeah, um, we're thrilled to have you both here because this is a little bit different to us. I'm sure folks listening may be like, gosh, you know, is this climate change stuff part of Creog learning objectives, or is this something I really need to know? Um, but I think testament to you being here, Serena, is that this is something that can be really interesting and hopefully make a career out of. Um, and I'm sure Dr. Pandapodi is able to kind of tell us a little bit about that too. But again, we want to focus right now on what we're learning today and hopefully get some people excited about this topic. So Serena, what exactly are we going to learn today? Yeah, so my hope is by the end of this podcast that we are able to understand how climate change poses risks to pregnant individuals. This is a really scoping broad issue, but we're going to focus in specifically on how heat, air pollution, natural disasters, and infectious diseases are associated with adverse pregnancy outcomes. We are then going to touch on the role of environmental justice in this topic. And then finally, we will end with reviewing steps that clinicians can take in patient care and advocacy. Awesome. Um, so I think before we get started, Sarita, I kind of just want to ask the question, which I think some people may ask, which is, you know, tell us the background of all of this. Why do we care about climate change? What is climate change? Yeah, this is a great place to start. So this is a topic that we are exposed to a lot in the media, but just to review our definition of climate change, this is changes in extreme weather and climate events. And most specifically, we think about temperature rise since the 1950s, primarily due to the burning of fossil fuels. 
We have seen that climate change has directly contributed to humanitarian emergencies, things like heat waves, wildfires, floods, hurricanes, and that these are increasing in frequency and intensity. This issue is really important. Um, globally, the WHO estimates that between the year 2030 and 2050, climate change is expected to cause approximately 250,000 deaths per year attributed to things like undernutrition, malaria, and heat stress. Got it. It's Got it. It's certainly a really big issue, and I know something that's captured a lot of folks' imagination, but I'm curious if you guys might be able to expand upon particularly the relevance of climate change to pregnancy. Yeah, sure. Uh, one, I just wanted to give a background. I first presented on climate change uh, to the University of Washington Department of OBGYN as a Grand Rounds as a third year resident, actually, just like Dr. Heyer is currently. And this was in 2003. And um, the, the topic had just started to broach. Not much research had been done at the time, but you can start to see already, even back then, uh, where we might head. Um, and so at that time, it was already clear that if we started to destabilize all of the physiologic mechanisms that we've evolved over many, many uh, millions of years as organisms, that these delicate balances could be tipped very easily, right? And so we evolved in a very stable climate as a human species. We evolved at a time of relatively stable CO2 concentrations and temperature. Um, a period of time that really allowed for us to develop adaptive mechanisms for the climate that we experienced. And now the climate is changing so quickly that a lot of those adaptive mechanisms are no longer functional, um, right? So uh, changes uh, that we are susceptible to, like heat, air pollution, infectious diseases, depend on so much context. And when the context is changing so quickly, um, then we are uh, vulnerable in that regard. Um, a lot of this impact is um, mediated through the placenta. And so there's a lot of transplacental injury, uh, both to mother and to fetus. And of course, we're talking about then setting the stage for the next generation of humanity. And so we've got a very critical issue here in terms of um, how healthy of a species do we continue to be as the climate is changing. And the problem, of course, is that the climate continues to change because we haven't hit any kind of stable equilibrium. And so even those who are born into this climate are not going to have a stable climate in their own lifetimes. And so this is what makes this so insidious and why we need to pay attention to this topic uh, and ever more so now. Um, and so the clinicians of today have no option but to understand what climatic impacts are gonna have on their patient's health. And no specialty more so than obstetrics, gynecology, pediatrics. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think what we should do is break this down by some of the topics that um, 
you spoke of, which is, you know, heat, air pollution, et cetera. So let's first talk about how heat um, could potentially affect um, pregnancy and, uh, um, and also um, the, the uh, fetus. Yeah, so I feel like heat is a good place to start because that's kind of the first thing that comes to mind when we think about climate change. Um, just to give a little context, we now have data that 2023 was the warmest year on record and July 2023 in particular being the hottest month ever recorded, if you can recall some of the media headlines at that time. And just looking within the United States, in order to meet the goals of the Paris Agreement, the U.S. has to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by about 60 percent by 2030, which is just in six years' time. So that is a long way to go from where we are right now, um, even though there's speculation that we may pass that 1.5 degree th um, centigrade threshold this upcoming year. So um, just a go a little bit into the specifics of how this relates to pregnancy. So the mechanism of injury through which there's uh, these increased heat events and how that affects both the maternal and fetal outcomes is not fully understood. We do know that there is a sort of normal physiology in pregnancy, things like a reduction in core temperature, lower sweating threshold, an increase in plasma volume and skin blood flow, all of these are um, adaptive mechanisms due to overall rising body mass in pregnancy. And so theoretically, these protective mechanisms, these physiologic changes could be overwhelmed during exposure to extreme heat and influence that transfer of heat to the fetus. And then there's some evidence that there are also inflammatory reactions that are occurring in these sorts of temperature fluctuations and alterations in placental perfusion. Kind of going back to some of the basics of how, how we understand heat, dehydration, all sort of causing an increase in oxytocin and prostaglandin secretion. This has also been proposed as a trigger for preterm birth and how um, heat stress events can, can um, relate to that sort of adverse outcome. So there have been a number of studies looking specifically at, at heat exposure and pregnancy outcomes. And from the literature, there's been an association with increased risks of preterm birth, stillbirth, low birth weight, and then thinking about congenital anomalies and um, association with fetal congenital heart defects and congenital cataracts. Um, for neonates that are born during um, exposures to heat events, there's a risk for prolonged ventilation, meconium aspiration, neonatal dehydration, also the need for rehospitalization. And this is um, just thinking globally where there are different access to resources in different areas of the world that are um, exposed to heat events in different ways. So, um, Both fascinating and depressing. I really am thrilled that you guys are taking this to the level of the physiology, right? And I think for our resident listeners, like getting sort of this review of the physiology of pregnancy while at the same time understanding the impacts. Um, again, is super fascinating. Let's turn it over to air pollution now, Santosh, and tell us a little bit kind of in that same vein, what does air pollution do with respect to pregnancy physiology? Yeah, for sure. And building with where Serena uh, talked about heat, 
you know, the same forces that are leading to excess heat are fundamentally the, the same that are contributing to excess air pollution. So combustion of fossil fuels, and unfortunately now with more uh, hotspots around the globe, we also have now wildfires as a major pollutant uh, source, right? So we've got um, our own human activities and then secondarily to those human activities, now nature itself contributing. Um, and so what we have is not only a rise in CO2, but we have a rise in particulate emissions. And so these particulate emissions are classified based on the average diameter size, and they're, they're a mixed bag of, of chemicals. But bottom line is we have 10 micron particulates and 2.5 micron particulates. The 10 micron particulates are able to lodge in our airways, in our lungs, and as a result can cause acute uh, respiratory inflammatory conditions. The 2.5 micron uh, particles are the ones that are even more deadly in that they can cross through the capillary boundaries and into general circulation. And it's there that we start to see uh, systemic effects, right? So these 2.5 micron part particles are able to actually cross through the placenta and actually deposit in fetal tissues, fetal liver, fetal brain, for example. We see um, these particles on uh, placental surfaces. And this, of course, uh, can't be good, doesn't require too much uh, inference to understand that that, that really is, is uh, dangerous to have. But really what we're seeing is why does pregnancy have a higher impact than, say, non-pregnancy? Well, in pregnancy, we have a 20% increase in oxygen consumption. Uh, we have a 40 to 50% increase in minute ventilation. And, uh, 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 and so we're just moving more air. And as a result, we're also moving more volumes of particulate pollution into our bodies, right? Um, the sad fact is the WHO, uh, by their criteria, 99% of the world, so that includes us, are breathing polluted air. Um, that exceeds WHO limits. So none of us are, are you know, uh, safe uh, from these emissions. And um, these emissions, as a result, have been shown to lead to similar outcomes like Serena was talking about with heat, right? Higher rates of stillbirth. It's estimated that um, air pollution is responsible for over one-third of the stillbirths in South Asia, for example, per year. I mean, it's it's unbelievable how staggering the statistic is. Um, there's a higher rate of low birth weight, higher rate of prematurity and premature birth uh, as a result of this. And a lot of this is mediated through placental inflammation, endothelial dysfunction. And again, the exact mechanisms are being worked out. One point of caution I would like to take is, while we're working out these mechanisms, the climate continues to change. And figuring out mechanisms of injury are important when you're trying to develop, for example, a drug or an intervention. But the problem and the real scary part about climate change is we don't have a fixed insult. And so if we continue with unabated emissions, we won't have drugs or interventions developed fast enough or effective enough or will soon be overwhelmed themselves by continued emissions and climate change. 
So it's important to understand the mechanisms, and obviously there are, but we are already seeing the impacts. Um, and so I think it's very important to ground ourselves in the reality of, of what is actually happening. Um, so I, and, and of course, we need to understand the impact of uh, the mechanisms so we can start taking mitigation, but also adaptive measures. Um, but those measures are only going to be so, um, so effective for so long. And so I, I don't want people to take solace in saying, okay, we can adapt to this. The problem is that it's, we don't know what to adapt to. Um, and again, I, I, I don't mean to sound negative or depressing, but <laughs> that, that is the reality that we're facing, unfortunately. Yeah, thank you so much for clarifying that. I mean, that is very scary, and uh, I'm going to go home and turn on all of my air purifiers now. <laughs> um, so I wanted to move on because I know we have other topics to discuss as well. So Serena, um, talk to us a little bit more about natural disasters and how that can impact pregnancy. Yeah, I think the big thing to highlight about natural disasters is we are kind of all aware that these sort of extreme weather events, things like floods and hurricanes, are becoming more common. But um, as you you might sort of think of intuitively, and it's also borne out in some of the studies on pregnancy and natural disasters, is that for this area, particularly of climate change, the ability for individuals to adapt to circumstances that um, are come about by these natural disasters really is related to their socioeconomic status and our resources that are at hand. So just thinking about the mechanism of entry, there's definitely the risk of direct effects from a natural disaster, things like um, injury, even death. But indirectly, thinking about um, things like depletion of resources, disruption of prenatal care, separation from family, and then the resulting sort of mental health burden of going through that um, and exposure to infectious disease that can come about from that. And so, for example, these sorts of um, effects were examined with Hurricane Katrina um, and some, some pretty interesting literature. There is some evidence that there might be some association with childhood outcomes, so increased odds of things like autism, spectrum disorder, ADHD, um, even schizophrenia. And then interestingly, looking at studies in other countries, so for example, there was a study looking at flooding in, in Canada, there was evidence that a potentially a relatively coordinated disaster response and that um, state infrastructure is really important, as well as universal health care and mitigating the effects of um, folks who are exposed to natural disasters in pregnancy. Now, and you mentioned there's a one of those consequences of natural disasters being exposure to infectious disease. Um, that may be something for our listeners that seems a little more tangible, um, and maybe folks have seen some of these things, but can you kind of talk with us a little bit about what infectious diseases in particular you guys are concerned about? Sure. Um, we're already seeing the spread of dengue, Chagas disease, um, malaria, Zika, as just examples, yellow fever, West Nile. Um, and the reason we're seeing this, this is because the conditions are changing. So the geographic boundaries that normally existed because of climate that essentially put a lid on where these organisms that spread these pathogens can live has, has expanded. 
with more uh, extended warm seasons, with more humidity, um, there is more opportunity now for these vectors to, to spread that carry these, these illnesses. So the natural disaster piece also interrelates because when you have, for example, flooding, and so now you have not only flooding, but you've got contaminated water resources. And so it's a lot easier to have infectious disease spread. In droughts, you have cisterns, you have places where people try to collect in wells and so forth water, but those then become uh, repositories for, for example, malaria, for mosquitoes to, to breed in. And so you've got both the droughts and the floods potentially being a risk for exposure to infectious diseases. Essentially, what we've got is, again, um, physiologic changes that happen in pregnancy that make them more, make pregnant individuals more vulnerable, right? So, for example, you're, you're breathing out more CO2. CO2 is a chemoattractant for mosquitoes. Um, that's simply because of the, the physiologic changes. We all understand that we're blowing out more CO2 uh, during pregnancy. Um, there's more uh, heat distribution to the skin, right? Blood flow distribution to the skin to dissipate heat in pregnancy. And so heat itself is a thermal attractor to uh, insects. And so we've got these various physiologic changes that already make pregnancy a more vulnerable situation. Um, a lot of this is, again, mediated through the placenta because we have placental infection that then leads to placental inflammation and downstream uh, impacts, uh, fetal growth restrictions, stillbirth, premature birth. And then, of course, there's some evidence that there's maternal hypertensive complications as well. There was something Serena hit on um, when she was talking about natural disasters that also tie in with air pollution as well, and that is that we know that there seems to be um, changes in neurodevelopment. Cognitive uh, impairment is higher with um, excess uh, exposure to not only natural disasters, but air pollution. And now if you say you're on top of that infected with Zika, you can start to see a multiplier effect right, on not only the physical health and well-being of the next generation, but also the, the parts that make us human beings, our minds, our creative force in our intellects, right, that start to get impacted uh, from multiple angles. Um, and that's what makes this so, so dangerous. The final part is also, of course, with natural disasters, we're brought closer together and Serena hit upon this, but then we're exposed to these infectious diseases um, more, more likely to be exposed, right? When we're brought together in refugee camps or when we're brought together because it's a FEMA disaster zone, right? And so we have to congregate together. Now we have, and then potentially there are other, we're not the only creatures in nature. And so, you know, all the other creatures in nature are impacted by these natural disasters. So now we're brought closer than ever maybe was intended to be, right? Uh, or meant to be from an evolutionary point of view uh, to have exposure to, to organisms. Yeah, these are all great points. Um, I know that, you know, as part of our learning objectives, um, this, I think this is a good transition point that the two of you wanted to talk about something called environmental justice. So I wanted to ask what this was because I'm actually not familiar with the term. It kind of reminds me of reproductive justice, um, but can the two of you talk about what environmental justice is and some examples? 
Yeah, this I think is a really important topic to bring up in this this issue and kind of how I uh, alluded to with the natural disasters that things like um, race, class, gender, those sorts of factors can play a role in uh, one's ability to um, adapt to changes of climate. Um, so just to give a little bit of background, as the term environmental racism is where this concept sort of stems from. It emerged in the 1980s and was used to describe the unequal exposures of pollution on racial minorities. Since then, we've really uh, used this term and expanded upon it to understand how other sorts of social categories can also be associated with disproportionate impacts that stem from climate change. So you have this term environmental justice, which has emerged as a social movement to address these inequities, both through ongoing scholarship and research, but also through advocacy and the shaping of public policy. If you go through the literature on this issue, there are a lot of studies that really document this very clearly. So we know that historically redlined neighborhoods in the US have less tree cover and green space, hotter temperatures, more buildings with blacktop and cement that create these urban heat islands. The areas in the United States that have the largest projected increases in heat-related mortality are 40% more likely to be within black neighborhoods, which is a pretty striking statistic. There was a study that was also done in New York City in particular, uh, looked at um, noxious facilities being more likely situated near neighborhoods that were predominantly black or Latino, and that a city planning practices then perpetuated distribution of this, um, these facilities through the concentration of manufacturing zones in primarily poor communities. So both their existing things that are currently occurring leading to these disproportionate adverse outcomes, but then kind of our ongoing um, infrastructure that then perpetuates things like this. The other thing to highlight that um, Dr. Pandapati uh, spoke of earlier is that when we think about these inequities and we're thinking about pregnancy, we're thinking about the pregnant individual and then also the next generation and the fetus that will be born. And knowing that there are these adverse pregnancy outcomes, you essentially have a system that then perpetuates inequities through generations based off of these social factors, which is something that's really important to consider when we think about this. And then finally, we've, you know, I've talked mostly about um, examples within the United States, but as this is a global issue, we know that there are these big differences between countries, both in their resources and also um, how cert you know, certain areas of the world are disproportionately impacted by climate burden than others, um, with nations that have historically contributed the least to greenhouse gas emissions now facing the most adverse effects. Uh, well, uh, Dr. Heyer really um, covered all the bases. I think the one thing to just say as an overarching comment about all of it, because I think you just hit it out of the park. We already had inequities across societies, across the globe, and these inequities have always been there, unfortunately, and we've been struggling to try to reduce those inequities, whether they're economic inequities, health, uh, healthcare inequities in terms of outcomes, exposure inequities. What climate change does is it puts pretty much puts an accelerator on all of it. And so not only an accelerator, but a magnifier on all of it. And so what makes this even more 
um, dangerous is that these inequities already exist, and now we're going to really destabilize populations that were already less well adapted to the environment and the context that they were in. And so the, um, it, that's why time is not unlimited. This is good conversation. I mean, it really, um, thank you to your both for really highlighting and making, again, the issues seem, um, you know, very, you've painted a wonderful picture. That's what I should say about all of this. And I think, as Faye had mentioned earlier, you know, this harkens back to me to a conversation that we've had previously on the podcast with some guests about structural racism and obstetrics and gynecology. And in that particular episode where we talked with some guests, they had some very tangible examples ultimately in the end of what clinicians could do, um, because this is a really big and potentially feels like an overwhelming problem, right? Um, just like systemic racism feels sometimes like a really big and overwhelming problem. And it's hard to say, like, what can I, as the individual resident physician, advanced practice provider, whomever you are, medical student, do in this moment? Um, so I want to ask you both kind of that same question is, what can we as individuals kind of do in our own practices or the way that we view this issue to to start making steps towards change? Uh, I can start, but um, feel free to jump in, Serena. Um, you know, this is where physicians stumble, right? And healthcare, um, uh, healthcare people in healthcare stumble. There's a tendency to say, well, I'm too busy. I got to deal with my clinic panel or my surgery day, or, you know, I've got to get through, you know, whatever administrative burdens that I have, right? And we say, well, these are political issues. These are not patient care issues. And so we fall into the trap that these are bigger societal problems than I as a humble whatever nurse, midwife, doctor, doula, whatever it is, and we fall into that trap. So one, we have to not fall into that trap. Two, we are agents of change on a very granular level. We have such deep, meaningful interactions with human beings on a daily basis. When we actually take a step back and we say, even though I have 15 minutes and I have not much time, this is an opportunity to connect with an individual, with their family, with their context, and try to understand what we can do. So there are some very practical things we can do. Practical things that you can do for a pregnant individual is guide them in terms of, hey, we're about to hit the warm season. Just be careful about avoiding excess exposure to heat. There, pay attention to heat waves. Make sure that you have access to a cooling center or air conditioning or somewhere where you can go that would minimize your exposure. Right? If you're in the, you know, in California like I am, um, wildfires and now atmospheric rivers are all problems, right? Mudslides as well as you know, um, um, particulate emissions from from deadly smoke, all of which we have to pay attention to and say, do you have a plan? Do you have a plan for your family? Do you have access to N95 masks? Do you have um, safe water, access to safe water if, if suddenly you 
you know, the infrastructure wasn't there. So there are some very practical things that you can prepare patients for, and you can say this in a very non-political manner, right? And then you can say, by the way, these are things that we're having to have families prepare more and more for because of the changes that are happening in the community. And what I found um, in these 24 years as a physician is that there's a lot of receptivity when it comes to the health of your unborn child, the health of your other children, the health of your family. And the politics falls apart, the, the rest of it falls apart. People are living in these changing environments. People are already aware that something's amiss. So it doesn't take much to start connecting dots for folks. And so I think it's very important that we use this opportunity. Physicians especially are probably the most scientifically advanced person that any common public individual will interact with in their lifetime. And it, our goal is always one of communication. We take medical studies, we take all the knowledge we have, and we distill it down to information that patients can use in a very practical sense. So we are the communicators of, of very important scientific information, at least until chat GPT takes it over from us, right? But until then, um, we're, still, we're still the ones having these conversations. So I think it's a, it's a great opportunity for the general public, and we're still trusted. I mean, we're right behind nurses, uh, by the way, appropriately so, uh, as far as where we are in terms of our trustworthiness, right, in the, in the public sphere. Um, and there's a lot of um, things that we can do as a healthcare sector. The, globally, the healthcare sector is responsible for nearly 5% of emissions, and that's one in 20. And in the U.S., um, over 8%, some studies say closer to 10% of emissions, and if we don't do anything, we're on track to double that level of emissions as the healthcare industry itself by 2050. Um, and then, as with all things, everything's disproportionate because we like to do things bigger and seemingly worse than everybody in the, in the world. And US healthcare emissions account for one fourth of the world's healthcare emissions. So, we have 4% of the globe's population, but we're responsible for 25% of global healthcare emissions. We have way too much single-use materials and plastics. We have um, anesthetic gases that are just freely released that are way more potent than carbon dioxide, right? We don't recapture those, recirculate those. We don't talk about what kind of food is offered to the staff and to the um, public. Um, the patients, um, a lot of, for example, in the Bay Area, plant-based diets are become, have become the standard, and you have to opt out of it to have a hamburger while you're in the hospital as a patient. So, you know, there are things that we can start to do, and just the supply chain. How many trucks are coming in? How many trucks are leaving? Are they electric, or are they, uh, you know, gasoline-powered? So just the whole fleet of vehicles that come in and out, there is so much opportunity for us to not only point fingers, but to actually fix our own contributions, right? So we have a, a great opportunity and for leaders like Dr. Heyer who are coming um, out of residency for um, 
faculty members and for leaders in the private sector, right? The Kaisers of the world, the, um, the, the, the private institutions and practices. There's so much opportunity that we can push our own peers to start waking up. Um, when I started presenting on this 20 years ago, I actually had fellow clinicians say, you're wasting your time and this is not a real problem. So, but it doesn't take a lot to start connecting dots. And why are we waiting for data to show that problems are happening? Because the data has to catch up to the reality, right? We have to create the studies, gather the data. And, and we have enough data now. If this were some kind of uncontrolled experiment, we would say that we have enough interim analysis data that we would not keep this experiment going, right? We would not continue to increase the pollution that we're um, seemingly continuing to increase emitting. Um, so there, there's a lot that we can do. Um, and then the final piece I would say is um, get engaged with your local medical society and get engaged with your state medical society. So um, this, for example, the California Medical Association um, has had multiple initiatives on trying to educate the California legislature, right, about the perils of climate change and what is it doing to uh, impact human health. In fact, that was one of the major action items at the House of Delegates just this past month um, meeting. We have to be able to translate this information to policymakers. And we don't have to be the ones making the policy, but we have to be the experts and we have to be brave enough to face the policymakers and say, it's time that this changes, right? And it's akin to the tobacco fight, but way, way more, I should say, of magnitude than the tobacco fight. Um, you know, people said, what business is it of ours to be interfering with private businesses like tobacco? What business is it of ours if somebody's smoking? And we said, well, because we're taking care of those people. We're seeing the COPD and we're seeing the pulmonary malignancies and we're seeing the shortened lifespans and we're seeing the cost to society. Well, now we're seeing it across all populations, right? We're focused on pregnancy, but the elderly are at risk. The very young children and, and um, newborns are at risk. Um, essentially, everybody is at risk. And by the time the most privileged of us are at risk, it's too late. So, I think this is a golden opportunity to, to pause, slow down. There is still hope. We haven't um, you know, lost all control of the environment. And, but our time is limited. And um, to Serena's point earlier, we may exceed the 1.5 degrees, but there are many studies that are now coming out that said maybe we've actually already exceeded the 1.5 degrees Celsius. So if we've overshot, how do we backtrack? Right. And the sad part is there's a lot of climate inertia and what emissions have already happened have happened. There's going to continue to be a change in temperature and there's going to continue to be a change in the climate. It's just at what rate and, and, and do we have time to adapt to it? Right. And not just us, but um, life forms all around us that we depend on. So. Yeah, thank you both so much for this incredible podcast that I think our learners are going to take a lot um, away from. Um, we traditionally have, um, at the very end of the podcast, just some takeaway points. So um, would either of you like to summarize what you hope our listeners will take away from this podcast? 
Yeah, I think that I'm hoping that our listeners will have an understanding that climate change is happening right now and is affecting the patients that we're interacting with on a daily basis, or recognizing that pregnancy itself is a susceptible time for these uh, sorts of adverse effects and that climate change does impact different populations disproportionately based off of their socioeconomic status. And I'm also hoping that from this podcast, you feel empowered to think about how to talk about this issue with patients to recognize the presentations of someone who is maybe going through a heat exposure to talk about preventative measures. And then potentially, if you're so interested and inclined to take that step to think about how you might get involved in um, local or national advocacy. Yeah, and um, only one other thing I forgot to mention because Serena, again, you hit it out of the park. Um, teach your patients to check the air quality index and adjust behaviors according to that. Um, and um, finally, um, vote for your health. Um, so encourage people to pay attention to climate news, to how it impacts their health, the health of their families, and then and then vote in favor of your health and your family's health. No, again, fascinating podcasts. Um, for those of you listening, uh, Dr. Pandapati, Dr. Hayer have put together a lovely list of readings. We'll have those on our website along with notes from this episode. So if you're looking to dive deeper or to try and find something else um, or look for resources for your patients, please, please, please head over to our website, creogsrovercoffee.com. Dr. Pandapati, Dr. Hayer, thank you again so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, an honor. All right, guys, so that brings us to the end of this podcast. So once again, this is Faye. This is Nick. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. So guys, if you enjoyed the podcast today, head over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, whatever your podcatcher is, give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Creogs Over Coffee, on X at Creogs Over Coffee One, and if you want to support the show, go ahead and go onto our Patreon at www.patreon.com/slash Creogs Over Coffee. There are show notes for this podcast as well as all of our prior podcasts on our website at www.creogsovercoffee.com. And if you have suggestions for a show, you have recommendations for us, or you caught a mistake, or just want to reach out, email us Creogs Over Coffee at gmail.com. Thank you.